Our second readings from Scripture this morning is the story of God making the first covenant with humanity on the heels of the great flood in the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis. Hebrew word for Genesis is Bereshit, simply means beginnings. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church this day. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be, shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, as we look through the storms to the rainbows, may the meditations of our hearts this morning upon your word be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was watching a scary YouTube video just yesterday about a, an offshore oil platform that isn't uh, it isn't anchored in the seafloor. It's too deep. It's these ballasts, you know, and they, they can withstand 80-foot waves. The problem was there were 120-foot waves on this video, and ultimately this platform capsized to great tragedy. So this morning, um, I want to talk a little bit about security, about insurance, about what anchors us, what anchors you in the midst of storms. This wonderful hard, at times, stormy, beautiful life that is ours. What anchors you? There's a story of a man who uh, climbed up, he had climbed up on the roof of his house to do some minor repairs, and because, like my house, the roof pitch was too steep to kind of go up there without some kind of anchor, he decided to throw a rope, he tie a rope around his waist and then toss it over the top of the, the, the house so it came down on the other side of the house, and the man knew his son was out working in the front yard. So he yelled to his son from where he was to tie the end of the rope off to something secure. And the other end, of course, was around his waist. And the son, not really knowing where his dad was, looked for something that looked secure and tied the rope to the bumper of the family car. That seemed to work well enough for a while, and the man of the house went about his business until the wife of the family, the mother of the young boy, 
uh, who was unaware of her husband's ingenious security measure, decided to run a quick errand, which required use of the car. She didn't see the rope tied to the bumper. Who looks for a rope tied to their car bumper? And she hopped in, turned the key, and pulled out of the driveway. And you know the result. Apparently, the man survived. Lent is a time when we own our tendency to grasp on to the wrong promises, the wrong advertisements of a secure and lasting anchor in our lives. Lent in church usually starts with the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Mark, whom we've been looking at a lot uh, in recent Sundays, tells that story right at the very beginning of his gospel. Matthew and Luke add the dialogue between Satan and Jesus. John doesn't have any temptation story at all, but uh, in Matthew and Luke, they talk about the, the, the devil talks with uh, Jesus and offers to um, uh, give Jesus all the power in the world if he'd throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple uh, or as he looked across the region of Galilee and into Israel. He tests Jesus and says, turn stone into bread. Jesus resists all these temptations. That's because he's Jesus. For us, they're not so easy, these temptations to try to anchor on to something that seems permanent, that seems like it's going to work for us, but doesn't. Today, though, we're not going to look at that story. Uh, We all know it pretty well. On this first Sunday of Lent, we're going to look at a typical ancient flood narrative. And this one we're looking at today, of course, is the one in Genesis, in the Hebrew, Jewish, Judeo-Christian tradition. I say typical because, and maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, there are literally hundreds of flood stories pretty much in every culture, in every part of the world. It's important for us to know that. Our flood story and our scripture, in many ways, in most ways, is not unique There is, as maybe you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's the Sumerian story of the hero Ziastra. There's Nuh in the Quran. There's Manu from the Hindu scriptures. There's the tales of the merchants of the sea from the Buddhist Samudha Vanya Jataka. You probably read that. There is a Trahasis from the Akkadian tablets. Utnapishtim from numerous Babylonian tablets. There's the Egyptian flood myth, of course, from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. There's the Duakalon and Pira in Greek mythology. There's the blood flood of Immer in Norse mythology. There's Kushkush in Aztec myth. There's a flood of Ife in the Yoruba Nigerian flood story. There's Fuhi family in a Chinese flood myth. There's the Ark Gumana in Australian Aboriginal myths. There's Nu and the flood of a Hawaiian myth. And there's the Choctaw tribe Great Spirit, just one of many North American flood myths. And it's argued that all these cultures have these myths because we share, all of us, some distant memory of some great global flood. And of course, archaeologists and biblical scholars are always looking for proof that the words on the page really happen. I don't think that's really the point at all of a great bit of scripture. Um, The point, I think, and a point that all these flood stories share in common is that there was a great flood, all kinds of water, pouring out on the earth where God destroyed human civilization as an act of divine retribution. 
God in the book of Genesis is not happy with us. We have strayed away from what it means to be a human being, to be a human race. We we had abandoned our humanity, and God was upset. And in a very harsh but deserved way, God wipes out almost all of humanity. It's hard to argue that there is something inside each one of us, inside all of us, that grieves God's heart. We don't like to admit it, and that's kind of why we do it every Sunday morning. We admit it in our prayer of confession, which prepares us for worship. In fact, though, most of the time, and even when we're saying that unison prayer of confession, we, we pretty much don't want to admit it. We don't really do it in a heartfelt way. We, most of the time, try to avoid looking hard at the truth of ourselves, we will rationalize, we will blame all of us. That's what we do. I like the old story about a man much the worse for wear who was standing before the judge in court. The judge eyed this man menacingly. You, sir, are accused by your landlord of being drunk and setting your bed on fire. It's a lie, judge, the man cried indignantly. That bed was on fire before I got in it. Thank you for that laugh, Vicki. Appreciate that. There is something within us, each one of us, that grieves at the heart of God. And just as importantly, that same something within us keeps us from achieving and living into our own dreams of a fulfilled, abundant life, a content life, deeply contented. I'm not saying necessarily wealthy or always comfortable, but one that is so contented in spirit that we are able to withstand the slings and arrows of this existence. So there is something within us that grieves God's heart and our own hearts as well, and emptiness and restlessness, it's always there. And we usually bury those feelings, that honest truth of how we are feeling, that anxiety that desire to do self-destructive things and destructive to other people, we are insecure about facing up to ourselves. We do not like to admit it to others. We don't like to admit it to ourselves. And Lent is the time when we make ourselves admit it. Isn't this fun? You're not perfect. You look perfect, but you're not perfect. I am clearly not perfect. Lent is a risky, scary time, therefore. To confess, to be honest about myself, is to take a leap of faith, is to jump into the deep water not knowing that I have what it takes to stay afloat. And here's where the Judeo-Christian flood narrative is distinctive, sets itself apart. It adds a special feature that the others do not. Then God said to Noah, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants. And this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. God does not say, I'm going to stop bringing clouds and storms. But God said, when you see the bow in the midst of the clouds and storms, 
I will remember my covenant, my promise to you to never, ever, ever again do this, to always be with you. Now, my view is that the historical veracity of all these other ancient stories in the Genesis by, in Genesis and the rest of the Bible will always be hard to prove and verify, especially the first chapters of Genesis, what we call the antediluvian pre-flood texts, the stories that are so far back. They're really more about the truth of humanity, who we are as human beings. But I would argue that in this flood story, which the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew tradition, which is a relatively new tradition in historical terms, is a story that was co-opted by our Jewish ancestors so that whoever wrote Genesis could use it so they could write this one sentence. In other words, I think the entire flood story is a build-up and lead-up to this one sentence. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. That covenant commitment, which is the foundation of the Christian faith as well as the Jewish faith now. For better or for worse, I will be with you. God doesn't shield us from the clouds. God doesn't shield us from the truth. There will be storms, but God's promise is that you will never go through the storms alone. Or as the writer of Genesis so beautifully puts it, when I bring a cloud over the earth, a bow shall be seen in the cloud. The great preacher of another generation, a man named Ralph Sockman, knew the mountaintops and the valleys of life in a covenant relationship with God. We all know the mountaintops and the valleys. Not many of us are comfortably in that risky, comfortable place where we put ourselves in God's hands on the mountaintops and in the deepest valleys. Ralph Sockman's only son, college age, fell to his death from an apartment on Park Avenue, and no satisfactory explanation of the tragedy was ever reached. The parents never knew why this happened exactly. And a number of years after that shocking loss, this Christian preacher, Dr. Sockman, issued this statement. Speaking personally, may I say that during the last decade of my life, things have happened to me which I cannot explain, nor can I say they were all sent of God. When I read, all things work together for good for them that love God, the only way I can understand this in my own case is using the analogy of a ship. There are parts of a ship which taken by themselves would sink. The engine would sink, the propeller would sink, but when the parts of a ship are built together, they float. So with the happenings of my life, some have been tragic, some have been happy, but when they are all built together, they form a craft that floats. I, more, one that I believe is going someplace, and in that I am comforted. Start with creation as we enter into this season of Lent. When the storm happens, and it will, look in the clouds for that bow. Sometimes you have to force yourself to look as you're avoiding high winds or big waves or 
mopping up your basement or whatever it is that this flood has done for you. Maybe you're recovering from financial difficulty, to unexpected layoff, a relationship ending, a diagnosis recently received. But remember to look through the storms into the sky, even into the clouds, the storm clouds for that bow. Remember why you were put here. Look next to the covenant as symbolized by the bow in the clouds and then wait. We've got to take one more step beyond creation and covenant. We have to allow ourselves to that, for that covenant promise to take effect. As Peter Marshall once put it, we are after like lumps of clay. There are brittle pieces, hard pieces. We don't ourselves have much shape or beauty, but we don't have to despair about this. If we are clay, just let us remember that there is a potter at the potter's wheel, even now, shaping us into the creation we were meant to be. All we have to do is allow God to do that. And the first step to that, even in a tough time like the season of Lent, is to look to the sky, look in the midst of the storm. We just have to be able to give every part of ourselves, even the secret parts, over to God, who promises to love us anyway. So Lent means facing those secret hard parts and then handing them over to God. But more importantly, Lent means going forward into the wilderness because we know how the story ends. That's the secret. We know how the story ends. Otherwise, we couldn't do this. You know, you have the flood storm image which terrified ancient people, water terrified people. The other sort of, on the other end of the spectrum, the other terrible, terrible image is the desert. It is dry. There is no water. It is hard. It is hot. We enter the desert with Christ willingly this time of year because we know that there, in any hard experience like that, we are going to confront the truth of ourselves, which we have to do to know God. None of the stuff we've accumulated can help us there. No college degree, no amount of money, nothing. Not even all the fun and friendships we've had. All you need in the desert is to survive. So we have a choice. We can stay put, like Jonah does in the book of Jonah. He pouts all the way through that entire book. Or we can keep walking, sometimes even staggering forward until we come across a gift, water, even a little trickle, and maybe some food, and maybe a sense of direction, and then maybe a little bit more courage and trust. That's what Lent is all about, walking forward, because we know how the story ends. We don't know exactly the way to get there, but we don't have to really worry about that, because God is with us, keeping that covenant promise. The quote at the beginning of our uh, bulletin this morning really grabbed me, this really unusual phrase. Uh, Charles Crow uses the phrase, citizens of the eternities. He says, we think we are in sad shape, we humans. We mope along with our fears and worries. We go in for self-pity. We look here and there for help, the right strategy, the right resources, but we don't find them. Then along comes Christ. He takes us by the hand and shows us this wide and wonderful world 
this mystery and wonder of life, this sparkling bit of time and space that is all ours for a brief moment in human history. Christ shames us for our timidity and crankiness. He dissolves our guilt and restores our faith in ourselves. He himself is our key to abundant living. Jesus shouts to us across the centuries to live in our world as though we were citizens of the eternities. I like that. We are citizens of the eternities. God's will for you and for me and for all human beings is to live joyfully, hopefully, and filled with a sense of expectation. Not storm-free, not problem-free, but joyfully, hopefully, and with the willingness and increasingly with the spiritually disciplined habit of looking for the rainbow, even in the midst of the storms. Nancy Lee DeMoss in her radio series, The Blessing of Thorns, tells a story about a woman named Sandra. Sandra was feeling exceedingly low as she made her way into the florist shop's door. It was Thanksgiving week. This is the week when Sandra would have delivered her second child a son, but there had been an automobile accident. It wasn't a serious accident. She wasn't injured, except that she lost her baby. And as if to add to her grief, Sandra's husband's company was threatening to transfer, and her sister had just called to say she couldn't come for the holiday. Thinking out loud as she went into the floor shop, she said, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving for what? For an airbag that saved my life, but that took my child's life? Good afternoon, can I help you? Said the shop clerk, which kind of surprised her, brought her back to the moment. Um, uh, she stammered, I need an arrangement for Thanksgiving. Are you looking for something that conveys gratitude this Thanksgiving holiday? The shop clerk asked. Not exactly, Sandra blurted out. In the last five months, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. She regretted her outburst, taking this stranger into her confidence, and she was surprised when the clerk said, I have just the arrangement for you. Just then, another customer entered the shop, and the clerk said, oh, hi, Barbara. Let me get your arrangement of long... So she, she, the bar she went back to the back room and came back out carrying an arrangement of long-stemmed, thorny roses, except... In this arrangement, all the ends of the rose stems had been snipped. There were no roses, just stems with lots and lots of thorns. You want this in a box, Barbara? asked the clerk. Sandra thought as she watched this, is this a joke? Who would want rose stems with no flowers? But it was no joke, and the customer left happily with her order. Uh, and Sandra said to the clerk, that lady just left with, um, she didn't have any flowers. Right, said the clerk. I cut off the flowers. That's the Thanksgiving special. I call it the Thanksgiving thorns bouquet. Then the clerk explained, Barbara came into the shop three years ago feeling a lot like you look like you're feeling right now. She thought she had very little to be thankful for. She had been laid off with absolutely no warning. She lost her father to cancer. Her family business was failing. Her son was caught up in drugs and she was facing major surgery. That same year, I lost my husband, continued the clerk, and for the first time in my life, I had to spend the holidays alone. I had no children, no husband, no family anywhere close, and too great credit card debt to travel anywhere. 
So what did you do, asked Sandra. I learned to be thankful for thorns, said the clerk quietly. I've always thanked God for good things in life, but I've never thought to ask God why those good things happened to me. When the bad stuff hit, I never asked why the bad stuff happened to me. It took time for me to learn that the dark times, the stormy times, are important. I always, of course, have enjoyed the flowers of life, but it took thorns to show me the beauty of God's love, God's commitment to me, God's comfort. You know, the Bible says that God comforts us, comforts us when we're afflicted, and from God's consolation, we learn over time to share that comfort with others. You and I, we are citizens of the eternities if we learn to give thanks for thorns and for storms. We're willing to enter Lent in this broken world, this conflicted world, with a sense of confidence and hope, even if we don't know, we can't possibly see how we're going to get there. But we do it because we know how the story ends. And it will end this particular leg of our story, our narrative, our journey, uh, in six weeks on Easter Sunday with the triumphant gift of God's presence, keeping of God's promise, which began in the rainbow. And we can still see through the worst and best times of our lives even now. Amen. Please pray with me. Loving God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We want to be in your presence, and we are so deeply grateful, especially in Lent, that it is not our desire to be with you or our energy or our work or our prayer that gets us into your presence, but you come to us, and when we're not paying attention, when we're caught up in all of the business and distraction and worry that is our everyday lives, you remind us that you are with us with the sign a rainbow in the sky, a kind word from someone, the beauty of nature, the deep artistry of music, the relationship of love. Help us to look and read the signs and then to go forward with confidence and hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.